Welcome to our podcast, First Name Basis, where we sit down with tribal scale employees and special guests such as Gib to have an authentic conversation on a variety of tech, business, and innovation topics. I'm Mitch, the VP of Products here at Tribal Scale, and today I'm here with Gib uh, Biddle, the former VP of Product at Netflix, the Chief Product Officer at Chegg, uh, and SVP Product at The Learning Company, and before that, producer at uh, Electronic Arts, uh, a huge list of accomplishments. Today, we will be talking about Gib's experience, about all things product, people, process, and tech today. So thanks for being here. You're welcome, Mitch. So I guess the first thing, uh, selfishly, that I want to kind of ask you as a, a product leader here is I'd love to get your perspective on when you moved from being a, a, a product manager in the, in the weeds, being quite tactical, to then being a leader and what that shift was all about and, uh, and it, advice you'd like to pass along the way. Sure. Um, I guess the first thing is... I, I, my theory is that leaders lead, so even when I was a punk kid in the right place at the right time, I was trying to provide leadership. So I, I just feel like every level of company, that's the job. Uh, I switched from marketing into product at Electronic Arts, and largely because I thought I would enjoy building stuff more. And so at Electronic Arts, it turned out that was a great place to learn how to build stuff. They had something called Producer College. Uh, and so they were very uh, disciplined at helping you to learn all the skills that you needed to be as a product manager. At some point, it, and I, I can talk later about the skills of a product manager, but at some point I started developing a list of the skills of a leader uh, in, in, as a product leader. For me, that was all about leadership. My definition is inspired communication of a vision, of strategic thinking. You know, what should you do and not in the long term of management. Management at that level is about hiring and building teams. Uh, this mix of proactive results oriented, everybody grab a shovel and do stuff, but then understanding in the longer term you have to, to think about culture as a tool for helping people to make great decisions without talking with each other. Um, I got into it, I, 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 I had a bunch of battlefront promotions, basically, and definitely right place at right time. So I had just become the VP of product at, at Creative Wonders, and we got bought by um, the learning company. And within six months, I was running product for all of the learning company. So I had to develop the skills quickly. In terms of getting out of the weeds, hard lessons, you never want to get too far from the weeds. So. You know, you got to understand what the job is, uh, and things change. Like having to learn about A-B testing when I was a muckety-muck at Netflix, it required that I get in the, in the weeds. And I, I find that over and over and over again. Yeah, no, in my own experience, I, I've, I've felt a bit of struggle and push and pull versus um, uh, the risk that, that, that ends up arising when you get out of the weeds, e either in, in losing craft or, or losing the ability of properly giving the right guidance to, to your people yeah. when, you, when you stray away. Well, I, I, I did get wonderfully bad advice. Um, I got bought by the learning company, and the head of HR explained to me that as you evolved in your career, the technical skills and your ability to, to do the job became less and less important. 
I just found he was wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, I know. I'm sure he was learning too. No, in today's talk, we learned a lot about A-B testing, and it sounds yeah. like that's been a, a strong theme in your career. Yeah, uh, I, I call it consumer science. So, you know, better living through it's definitely, insight from customers. It's definitely a science. So, so with respect to that building the teams and, and, and the people you choose to, 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 to hire in this, what, what's your perspective on kind of character traits of an individuals versus their like hardened education? And, and have you learned any tidbits along the way into how you value those two things and, and kind of determine importance? So I have hired probably a scary number, like 100 <laughs> product managers, either directly or building teams. Mm -hmm. and to, to a degree, I almost feel like it was a testable thing. So over the years, I have been developing this set of attributes of a product manager or product leader and of a leader. If I hired somebody awesome, I'm like, okay, this is important. And if I hired somebody that was stinky, I'm like, okay, what did I fail to pick up? The, what I look for for product managers, they have technical skills. Um, so my definition is they don't let their eyes gloss over when they're talking with their technology partners. Recognize I'm super soft on that attribute. I was the English major. Technical, the management, do you have the skills to build stuff? Creative is the lifeblood of what we do. Um, consumer science, so how to get consumer insight using a lot of different tools and tactics. Design, and that really the lesson for me is how to keep things simple. Um, so those are the characteristics that I look for in a product manager. Nobody has all of the skills. Um, and so like at Netflix, I sort of built a portfolio. I, I needed some people with movie expertise. I also needed some, I call them wild ducks, highly creative people that I would take risks on, that I hope would over time learn about consumer science. Um, that worked out occasionally. Um, so, but in that case, I was looking for specific skills and I was a little, I was thoughtful about what I needed specifically, what domain expertise would be required. I think your, your original question, like background, I mean, I'm a lousy candidate by background. You know, how many English majors do you say, okay, I'll, I'll let them be the product leader? That's just crazy talk. Especially uh, data focused. There you go. Now. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So I just think there's many paths to success. Yeah. Um, and if you are really excited about what you do, that drives your intellectual curiosity, that drives your grit, and those are all good things. Now, at, at Netflix, uh, one, one of the things that I think uh, they, they've become famous for outside of the actual product is is the HR kind of culture and deck that Patty McCord has, has put out there uh, and, and you even you know referenced it a few times today in your talk and I just love to hear from you at your time there what, what do you think are the the pieces that that you will continue to take with you everywhere you go and and maybe something that 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 what that wasn't right outside of the walls of of Netflix. Sure. So I had, I knew that culture was important before I show up, showed up at Netflix. Actually, when I interviewed at Electronic Arts, Trip Hawkins was the CEO, and I realized he was doing a culture interview. He was testing me. We did this day in a life interview, 
about how I matched the degree I was good fit against the values of that company. I can still remember the values of that company. And then when I was a, a punk kid, leader in the right place at the right time, at some point I understood the value of culture, which people could make great decisions without talking to each other, without process. And process is the, the suckiest thing to introduce to, to creative work. It sucks the life out of things. Netflix, my learnings was it was deliberate. Um, so like anything, you can be thoughtful about building a culture. We edited the Netflix culture deck for four years before we published it. Oh, wow. um, it was about 120 pages. Every quarter, we had something called quarterly business review. It was all, I call them muckety mucks, but directors, VPs and above. In the early days, that was 30 or 40 people. You know, when I left, there were probably 180 people. Um, so we would debate the attributes of that culture deck. We did a lot of cases and role playing, which is weird, but that's how you were able to practice decision making. And that's how you were really able to tease out what you valued and what you didn't. Uh, and then the next thing I learned is that, that, so you have to be deliberate about defining your culture, and then it needs to be edited on an ongoing basis, and then you need to live it. <laughs> it's kind of like software, right? You need yeah. to continually yeah. maintain yeah. it, release yeah. it, try new things. Yeah. And the living it is, what are the mechanisms you have? I mean, here, some of your mechanisms are your, your stand-ups every morning, you have something that's social, is it like on Wednesdays? Yeah, yeah. Like Airbnb, they have like, everybody goes through the tunnel for new employees where people are holding up their arms. <laughs> you know, Amazon used to have the Stinky Shoe Award for the person who most embodied uh, the frugality value at Amazon. So that last question is, how do you live it? And how do you, uh, and, and the most important one is who you hire, who you fire, and who you promote. So the promotions are saying, this is what um, you know, a, a Netflix person looks like or an electronic arts person looks like. Uh, the hiring, we published the culture deck mainly because people in their first week of work at Netflix, as they were being you know, indoctrinated, if you will, were going, oh shit, like, is this the company I signed <laughs> up for? And so the solution to that was to publish the deck deck openly. Give them as much information as you Correct. could Correct. Yeah. And then, you know, talk about experimentation. The unintended consequence, which was quite surprising, it turned out to me an amazing recruiting tactic, which was not the intent. But suddenly, uh, engineers on, working on Wall Street, they were doing machine learning that never contemplate working for a movie company, were like, whoa, what's going on here? Um, so now if you, if you search for Netflix Culture Deck, you'll find yourself right oh, yeah. at the jobs page. Oh, yeah. Right? No, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I think once a yeah. week I see someone yeah. tweet about it or That's write right. a Medium article about yeah. some aspect of it. Yeah, anyways, you know, if it's all about taking the time to define it, to keep editing it, and then finding all these mechanisms to live it. Cool. And it's not touchy-feely. Like, Patty would, would regret you're even using the phrase HR, <laughs> right? I mean, she's the anti-HR person. Um, but it was important to her. It was really important to read as well. I, two of those had done a startup before. You know, they would nicely say that they, they didn't create a great company. So the next time around, they were trying to create a great company right. and being more thoughtful, more deliberate about it.
Uh, very cool. Yeah. So switching the topic from people to technology a little bit, um, I remember uh, a while ago when, when Netflix did did have that million dollar algorithm prize and, and for some reason like I still see that as a bit of a turning point of when all of us started thinking about okay, data, AI, machine learning, all of this is really going to be something that differentiates products. And I'm curious to hear your perspective on, as a, as a product manager, uh, how, how should we be thinking about uh, AI and machine learning in this very, like, very heavy, quantitative, like, mathematically oriented uh, practice that I, it feels like is becoming integral to making like, great products that, that people love? So I can't give you any insight on machine learning. I can give you insight about how to think about these algorithmic approaches. Um, so personalization in Netflix, there were sort of four strategies or theories. The first was collect lots of explicit taste data from our members. In the old days, that was star ratings. The second was understanding the importance of implicit data. In the era of streaming, Netflix knows what you choose to watch, what you quit. That's implicit data. Um, the third was, the idea was get to know you, or today it's 150 million members, and, and have all the data about the movies and magically connect them using different algorithms. Uh, it, that's enough for now. Um, and uh, the, the algorithm that worked was collaborative filtering. And that basically says, because you like Stranger Things and because you like Breaking Bad, I like Stranger Things and Breaking Bad, and I like Ozark, then you'll like Ozark. So collaborative filtering is doing that, that same kind of relationship, but work it out for 150 million yeah, members. Do it at scale. Yeah, totally. Um, so we knew that that worked. Uh, and then the problem is we only had one or two engineers to work on the problem. Um, and so the idea was, there's a neat book called Latitude, I think, that did a prize for solving the navigational issue. Anyways, um, and Reed had read this. Uh, I'll definitely credit him with the idea of outsourcing this. Um, we had a metric, which was RMSE. It was, uh, if I predicted you like Breaking Bad, four stars, and it was four star, perfect. RMSE goes to zero. Um, anyways, so we had a metric. And so we released uh, a sampling of data uh, and this was actually another surprise. This was the first surprise from recruiting. As, as you pointed out, for the first time, engineers throughout the world understood that we were doing something cool. Uh, before, it was like, I don't know what they thought. We were like doing pet food or something. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. um, anyways, after two years, a team claimed the million dollar prize. Uh, I, you know, I think at times we had thousands of engineers working on the problem, so it was really good for us. The sad thing was they improved RMSE by 10%, and then we executed it, and it didn't improve re retention, which is the, the big oh, dog wow. metric. And the main message there is that retention is really hard to move. <laughs> uh, but there were some other cool things. Um, one of the insights in the first two years was the more algorithms that you combine, the better. And you could see that. If you, if you actually look at the winning list on the Netflix prize, you can still see it. The names are crazy. Like, uh, it's, um, oh gosh, there's one, that I, it's like a tribute to Seinfeld. But um, what happened was when a team wasn't winning, they combined with 
like number two and number three teams would combine all their algorithms to try to bump number one. And that's when the, the, we, we all got the insight that the more algorithms you combine, the better. Uh, that was super helpful. We actually learned that all ratings are not created equal. We got most of our ratings from something called the Ratings Wizard. A lot of those ratings were your reflection on movies you'd seen in the past. Mm -hmm. The ones that you rated while watching a movie you know, on Netflix were much more predictive of you. Uh, later, we did something called, it was called quantum theory at the beginning. It's sort of a category interest algorithm. For the first time, we were able to, um, to describe why you'd like a movie. You know, oh, wow. We think you like Ozark because you like dark, suspenseful right, you have stories. All these attributes that's right, related that's right. to yeah, yeah. and be able to determine things. Anyways, so, I th so the algorithmic part, it was important to have a strategy, to have proxy metrics that helped you to understand whether you're succeeding or not, and then test lots of stuff to see what works over time, and then to be patient. Uh, in a machine learning age, I'm sure that you know, Netflix has got something like 1,200 classifications that oh, describe yeah. our different tastes, and you and I are in two or three of those buckets, and they don't make the mistake of giving it a name. Uh, but the cool thing is I'm sure they're testing hundreds of algorithms today in parallel. And understanding yeah. which ones yeah. to combine That's to right. get those That's better right. results. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so those are so like, cool. like each of those algorithms are almost like individual products on their yeah. own. Yeah, no, it's side. funny because I, um, a data person, uh, it, it was like the head of data at Netflix. He went on to Stitch Fix. Do you know Stitch Fix? No. Well, don't. Stitch Fix is way cool because at the end of the day, it sends four items of clothing to you each month, and they have to get it right or you return uh, the clothes. So yeah. this is a, like a high-wire act for personalization. His name is Eric Coulson. He's got 50 engineers doing 50 different algorithms to predict people's clothing taste, and then he's got 50 stylists, and he pairs the two of them together. Because one of the insights that came up later is it's, it's you know, it's, it's, um, human plus uh, algorithm and, and, and the ability to combine those two. Right, it sounds uh, like he's got cool. a, a unique way of doing that. Yeah, well, he, his job at Netflix before he left was to predict how many hours of watching a movie would get. So it, from time to time, he was wickedly surprised. So one of the mysteries was National Geographic films got 10x as much watching as all of his algorithms predicted. So this is when he, like, okay, go talk to humans. It turns out that National Geographic boxes have this big gold border around the edge, which attracts attention. So when he showed this problem to a human, the human's like looking at him like, what are you, stupid? Like, <laughs> and, and that's what he learned. And so then he would sort of give this tool to humans and say, Listen, we, we got all the data and all the, the algorithmic work to predict how much a movie will be watched. I just want you to approach it on a human basis. Uh, and, you know, the gold border or, you know, think about movies where, you know, you have bikinis on the cover, right? Like that's, but the algorithm doesn't understand that, but the humans look at it and say, hey, this is what's going on. Well, as yeah. you're alluding to earlier too, I guess that's why you're always going to need some, some amount of human <laughs> I'm very hopeful. I'm very yeah. hopeful that we're, well, the, the, the interest, you know, I, I, I'm always collecting these, you know, I call them wicked hard decisions, but the hardest are when the data says you should do this, but um, 
longer term strategic issues or any number of other things actually say you should do the opposite of what the data shows. And those are really interesting to me. That's yeah, no, and I guess those are decisions that you end up needing to architect, like, okay, how do, after we make the decision, yes. Yes. how do we end up measuring whether we're actually... Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, some of these things are not knowable. I mean, the personalization, that I just sometimes describe that as like a 10-year leap of faith for Netflix. I don't think they were able to prove until maybe 10 years that it actually improved retention. Uh, but it was the proxy metric that gave hope all along the way. It's, uh, well, that ended up working out. Yeah, I think so. Um, so in, in our business here at, at, at tribal scale, uh, we work with a lot of enterprises, and, and one of the things that we constantly advocate in, in our approach to product development, which is a, an iterative one that's been informed by you know, the Netflixes, Facebooks, and everyone out there, uh, and, it's, and a backbone of it is you know, shipping something quickly because there's no better learning than, than an actual user touching it. In our world, we, we're often in a position where uh, uh, in an enterprise circumstance, there, there's a lot of risk aversion to that. Yeah. And I'm just kind of curious in, in your own experience, kind of what kind of like talk track and do you, do you like to use in getting somebody comfortable with like weighing that, that risk and, and enabling them to you know, make, that make a decision to learn? Yeah. Okay, there's two questions hiding in there. Uh, I understand one of them was how do you build a, a culture that embraces experimentation and risk taking? I think the other one is a little bit, what's the difference between building consumer and enterprise stuff? Which maybe we'll get to the second one. Uh, I'll do the first one. Um, so the way I think about it is have a hypothesis. You know, I believe, I'll do a failed hypothesis for Netflix. The theory was if we could connect Netflix members with each other on the service and they would share movies ideas with each other, we would create a hard to copy network effect where people were getting great movie ideas from their friends and then wouldn't leave the service because because that's where all their friends were exactly. and getting then, all the great That's a failed ideas. theory. But um, that, the hypothesis exists, it did, and then we had a proxy metric. The proxy was percentage of members that, in, that connect with at least one of their friends. Obviously, lots of um, data you know, via Facebook that social strategies work, you know, pressure you know, to have a social strategy. Uh, so in that case, we, 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 we had our strategy, we had our hypothesis, we had our proxy metric, we launched, and in that case, we just couldn't move the proxy. And like at launch, 2% of our members were you know, connecting with at least one friend, and after three years, we got it to 6%, which wasn't enough, right? Um, and at that point, we were deliberate about killing it. Um, gosh. So I guess the lesson there yeah. is like, you know, figure out your procs, like determine what your hypothesis is and then determine like some type of measurement, whether direct or by yeah. proxy, if it yeah. needs to be, I guess, yeah. and, and then make it and make a decision. Yeah. So I think it's funny because there is this short term, long term balancing act. So 
the, the hypothesis that social would do all these things seemed valid. And so we, we invested, you know, whatever it was, 10 or 20 folks in that area. And then we were patient to see if we could move the proxy and learn that we couldn't. And then we were disciplined about killing it, which a lot of companies aren't. Did you, do you, do you, did you have a, a framework at that time of like, hey, regardless of what experiment we run, we're gonna give it kind of six months and make a decision, or is that, or is that something that just kind of happened naturally a bit? It's funny, you know, it was part of the Netflix culture. It's, you know, rules, even rules of thumb don't really exist. Okay. Um, you know, you're hiring bright people to solve wicked hard problems together. So didn't, um, but the proxy metrics were clearly, you know, informative. Um, yeah, we killed that sucker at, when it got to 6%. We had another animal called Profiles, which is you could, a husband and wife could manage their separate cues. We killed that because it was only 2% and all heck broke loose. <laughs> so it's a very different situation. And then we had to revert. Like, yeah, crazy. Impor importance of feature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, we were, we were ruining their marriages. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So strongly felt. There, there, there's yeah. a proxy metric that wasn't being That's measured. Right. That's right. Yeah. But this is where, like, if, if I made a rule of thumb that you should never support a feature that, that does less than 6%, that, that wouldn't be valid in this case. Um, so, you know, then just celebrate learnings. So, I mean, the, the key insights from the, the, the friends and social was that, you know, I believe that the reason social doesn't work in movies is twofold. Actually, there's a third reason, but the first is um, you don't want your friends to know everything that you're watching. You know, you have your guilty pleasures, your, your um, I don't know what your guilty pleasure is. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not telling you mine. The second, I should say yeah, yeah, yeah. Your second would be that um, at the end of the day, your friends don't have, you know, good movie taste is the nice way of saying it. And then the third, you have to nicely remember uh, in 2007, 2008, how hard it was to connect people together because Facebook wasn't enabling that as yet. So it's just a lot of work. Yeah, you want yeah. but there are fundamental insights that you apply. I mean, the interesting thing is Netflix has continued to experiment a little bit with these different social strategies, and they still haven't made it work. So, so in, in your work with like Chegg, for instance, when you switch to kind of education, is, is this like experimentation model and your perspective on like the importance of it and what type of experiments you run? Yeah. Uh, like. You, you view it similar ways you did with um, streaming, streaming yeah. TV. So I, I go back my whole career. I've gone back and forth between education, which is doing good for the world, and then entertainment, which my wife, who's trying to cure cancer, would describe it as rotting people's brains out. Right? Not that there's any value judgment she was making, um, <laughs> but but um, the through line. For, so for, you know, I love education, and but the through line was. You know, when I first show up at a company, I'm trying to answer the question, how will we delight customers in these hard-to-copy, margin-enhancing ways? And that helps me to develop these high-level theories. So the, the high-level theories at Chegg were personalization would do that. Another was that we were going to build a notion of student graph, that, that, that in the long term it would help us to create lots of different student services. Uh, I had another model, I call it Glee, which is... At Chegg, my theory was we were going to get big on textbook rental, and then we were going to lead e-textbooks, just the way Netflix went from get big on DVD to lead streaming. 
Um, let it check I got that wrong. <laughs> so, and that's okay, right? Turns out e-textbooks still haven't happened. So I had to modify to get big on textbook rental to lead. At the end of the day, it was homework help. So some of these ways of thinking about product strategy or delighting customers in hard-to-copy, margin-enhancing ways evolved. And there's huge differences. Um, culturally, Netflix is modeled, it really went from a pro team to a um, like dream team. Um, you know, this is the culture that said, um, you know, good performance gets a generous severance. Chegg was more of a family structure. So it's just a different context. And, and for instance, I, Netflix never hired summer interns. And at Chegg, which was focused on students and college students, we would hire like 30 college student interns because that was part of what we did. Yeah, it's the culture uh, yeah, of the, exactly. the company. Yeah, so, you know, some radically different things from one company to the next, but you can still apply some of the different frameworks like delighting customers in hard to copy margin enhancing ways or that Glee model to both. Uh, so di dialing back a bit, I was uh, I kind of skipped over it, but I, I, I was asking you in, in, in thought process behind a tribal scale, we do a lot of uh, enterprise product building yeah, and through yeah. your experience, you, you've done a lot of great kind of consumer yeah. product building. And in our world, we have this very real challenge of, uh, you know, the, the enterprise already has a lot of customers. They have people, like, I'm going to use air quotes here, but like dependent on a particular service or yeah. product. Yeah. And, and that seems to increase the associated risk with doing something new and different or shipping something immediately. And, and we're always trying to bridge that gap yeah. to yeah. make it feel faster. Yeah. Yeah, no, the way the way I th I understand consumer, and I am just intrigued by mm -hmm. enterprise, and I'll ask questions of my enterprise pals, and like for instance, in consumer, in most cases, I can guess the the winner in A/B test, which is simpler, and then I see these incredibly complicated uh, designs in enterprise software, and then I I nicely ask them, and they say, Hey, Gib, think about this that person is spending eight to 10 hours a day with our software. Like, they can get to know it super well, and they need it to do incredibly complicated things. That's radically different from consumer. Or, you know, the, the notion in consumer is to get, get, get something out there quickly. You know, if it's a great idea, you know, great ideas are not brittle. So even if it sucks at the beginning, you'll learn a lot because if it's really a great idea, even in a poor execution, uh, some consumers will resonate. Well, in enterprise, um, you know, at the end of the day, that first thing that you're launching, people are paying for. And it, it tends, you know, my, my, my guess or observation is it tends to uh, make the, the, the demands of quality earlier out of the gate. And then the other complicated one is my in consumer, the, the users, the members are also paying, and sometimes the value creation, uh, the people using the software and enterprise, is different from the person paying for it. No, uh, that's yeah, often yeah, different. I yeah, feel that yeah, that ends up being a, yeah, uh, totally. a design challenge. Yeah, yeah. Is the person commissioning what you're building yeah. versus the person that, uh, that's as right. you said, is going to be using it eight hours a day? That's right. Yes. So I'm guessing. Uh, so first, just recognizing the differences. And then second, what I think is common is have a strategy. Be able to articulate what your strategy is. I, I think the 
delighting customers in these hard to copy margin enhancing models still holds up. I use that Glee model as a way of just nicely encouraging people to think long term. This is what we're doing in the first couple of our years of our company, but our aspiration is five to 10 years out. This is what we'll be doing. And then radical thinking. This is, I guess, of what we might do 15 years from now. And the reason I try to focus on the long term thinking is it's just nice to remind folks to think long term because if you think long term, you can begin to understand that in the long term, anything is possible. If you're just focused on one or two years, you're like, I can't do that. I can't do that. Which is you know, why I'm always trying to introduce some notion of thinking long term. You know, one of the points that you mentioned that, that works in consumer that I, I feel we could actually do a way better job articulating yeah. in enterprise is, is that tidbit that good ideas are our resilience. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and if we truly do believe we've got a good idea at hand, yeah. even if we don't execute it perfectly yeah. out of the gate, yeah. like it, it will survive if it's good. Yeah. It will probably crash and burn if it's not. Yeah. And, and that could be okay. Like it, obviously, it depends on the, the, what product we're talking about, but that's right. a good tidbit to take away, I feel. Yeah, like. no, it's interesting, because I, like, I was just thinking, I use SurveyMonkey a lot, and that's an enterprise software tool, I mean, to my mind. Um, that's interesting. No, I'm, 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 I'm going to take that one. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm excited to use the line I mean, yeah. of, you know, good ideas are resilient. Let's yeah. not be afraid of yeah. them. Yeah. So that that is most of uh, what I had for today, Gib. And I know you're a big fan of feedback. So part of what we're going to try and do on this video is, can you explain a little bit of what, what folks who see this could do to give you some feedback? Sure. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a big believer in consumer science. Um, I, I do talks, I do workshops, I write. But if you know me, there's a Net Promoters survey link at the end of everything I do. <laughs> and I have been frustrated with, with podcasts because it's hard to build that instant feedback system. Um, so what I'd love to do is I'm happy to pr provide a, um, a link. But I've been hacking. I actually learned this from some 20-year-old kids in Toronto. At the end of one of my talks, they said, oh, just put a QR code up. I'm like, well, that's the world's stupidest idea. And the next night, I put up a QR code, and it, it was hysterical. Everybody in the room that had watched the talk for 45 or 50 minutes was eager to use their phone. I just said, hold up your phone as though you're taking a picture, and, and magically. magically, the SurveyMonkey link came up. So anyways, we'll, we'll provide a QR code at the end of this. Hold your phone up to it, and you don't have to take a picture, but, but automatically, the link will pop up. Um, on most phones, and and if it doesn't, we'll provide a link somewhere yeah, else. It sounds but, good. But the feedback is it's it's hard building stuff if you don't have feedback, and so I now have 350 survey links. Okay, <laughs> for every talk, every workshop, every article I've done, there is amazing insight in each. So first, you get an NPS. You know, 50 is good and 70 is world class. So you have a sense of how you're doing. But the cool thing is, every time I read results from anything I do. There's just absolute gems on what could be better and gems on how, you, you know, uh, of stupid things that I did that I just have to stop doing. And it's amazing. Um, and so that, that's where I really love the consumer science. So with that, please hold your phone up to the QR code. Give, give us some feedback. And, and give, thank you for joining us on First Name Basis. And for everyone else, uh, to learn more about us, feel free to visit our website at tribalscale.com and join us on social. And you'll be able to see this, this recording as well as previous ones. Thank you.
Thanks a ton, Matt. Thanks. Yeah, Tribal Scouts. Fun to be here. And I love Toronto. <laughs> Keep coming back. <laughs> yeah, thanks.